listen to me. You hear what I say? You're going to listen to me. I'm putting the fantastic power of the human mind at work to be fuddled and confused your poor psyche so that you will be unable to tune me off. You are going to listen to me. Do you hear me? I'm concentrating. You will listen to me. You will listen for the entire 45 minutes. You are going to listen to me. Oh, it's concentration. Oh. oh, do you think we got him now, Joe, huh? Oh, God. This fantastic concentration just gets me down to the gut, you know. Have you ever... Have you ever concentrated on something so hard that it begins to hurt inside? You know, like uh, you look at your boss and you say, You will develop acne. You will... <laughs> you will turn into a... A frog! You aren't going to go out of your bird! He looks and says, what's the matter with you, Clarence? I look like you're having a little stomach trouble there. You want to take the afternoon up? You you are going to turn into a toad. You are going to turn into a toad, you hear me? A toad. A toad. A toad. the limits of the human mind. Who knows the evil that man can perpetrate if he puts his entire psyche to work. Bring it all out. Out, out, Joe. Come on, pig. Yeah, come on, pig, Joe. Bring it up, pig. I want it to surround me. Is that all that'll come up? That damn sheep lined up a clip we're using in there. We got one of those wind-driven Sears robot tape recorders in there. There it goes. Fantastic. Bring it up big. what the mind can do that concentrates. Did I ever tell you about the friend of mine that taught his dog to answer the phone? Pure example of mind over recalcitrant matter. Yeah, yeah you know? I mean, believe me, the, the dog doesn't normally answer phones. And if you've ever tried to get one to answer a phone, man, you know exactly what kind of a struggle. And it was mind. It's pure mind. He sat there in the living room every day looking at his dog which, incidentally, was a curious combination of a Basset Hound and a St. Bernard. A very, very strange-looking animal. C can you imagine the romance that existed between a Basset Hound and a, and a large St. Bernard that produced that monster? But the... <laughs> if you can imagine a 350-pound dog with four-inch legs, that was what my friend's dog looked like. And he used to sit there and say, You are going to answer the phone. Yeah, you are going to answer the phone. And you know how dogs act. Just sat around and slobbered. Once in a while, I would walk over and wet on the sofa. And he kept saying, 
<laughs> you are going to answer the phone. Well, you know that he actually trained the dog to answer the phone. Now, you, everybody, I, I can't get anybody to believe this, but I saw the damn thing do it, and I, I know it can be done. And you know what, it, what would happen? Every time the phone would ring, it would ring twice. The dog was automatically trained. It trained after about six months of working with him. The phone would ring twice. The dog would get up, walk over. He kept the phone on a, on a low coffee table, like, you know, just sitting there next to the chair. And the dog would walk over and just reach over, pick up the phone in his teeth, lay it down on the coffee table, and go, ah, ah, and then pick up the phone and replace it and put it back on the cradle. Now, what did this gain, my friend? Well, it gained a lot. That any time that any of his friends called and the dog answered the phone, it meant that he was not home. Right? And they didn't have to sit there and ring the phone for about 40 minutes, you know, and say, I don't know what, what happened. I figured you was in the John, so I just let it ring. Or, uh, holy smokes, let's call the cops. I know Charlie's home. Something must have happened to him. You know, this scene. So his dog would answer the phone. And <laughs> you think that's crazy, but it's actually worked. And he used to call him up once in a while and, and uh, see if everything was all right at home, you know. He'd be out uh, someplace, and he would just dial his number, and uh, it would ring a couple of times, and then you hear this click, and you ah, ah! And uh, he would say something like, uh, down, Fred. And the Fred would go, ah! And then he'd just hang up, and that was the end of it. It's kind of nice to be able to call home and uh, have somebody answer, even you live, you know, even if you live alone. So uh, you think this, you know, this, this, uh, this is the power of the mind, the mind. Why do you think you listen to me? Power of mind. I'm, I'm radiating it, see? The thing that, that maybe you don't understand, I think even Joe, our engineer, does not realize this, that there are a lot of experiments going on in what they call electromagnetic, uh, well, actually, it's electromagnetic byproductal transmission. Now, what does this mean? It means that there's a lot of stuff that is transmitted in electromagnetic generation of signals like television, like uh, radar cooked hot dogs, uh, diathermy. <laughs> yeah, you know, they cook hot dogs by radar. You know, you've seen this. Uh, all that kind of stuff. Well, they have discovered that there's a lot more transmitted than they ever had thought. Many, many, many different uh, complex wave waveforms that, uh, that are transmitted by these various media. That, that includes all kinds of transmitters. And it has a positive effect on people. Now, for example, have you ever noticed that for some absolutely inexplicable reason you cannot get yourself to turn off a rotten movie at 2.30 in the morning when you got to get up at 7 o'clock in the morning and you're still sitting there watching this rotten movie hour after hour and the Preparation H man comes on and uh, all those great things that happen at night, you know. <laughs> What's this used car lot? Let's get rid of this, uh, let's get rid of this heap, uh, what's his name, Norman? And she kicks the wheel, and the thing falls down, and he says, but Gloria, you remember that spot, you remember, but Gloria. She says, let's go, and then they drive away, and he says, can I drive? She says, no. Well, you know, these are really bad commercials, and yet you sit there and watch this hour after hour. It's like a scene out of hell. I mean, there's one commercial that comes out about 2.30 in the morning, that shows a whole bunch of people writhing on what appears to be racks. And they're all wearing various types of leotard. You notice this? And they're going up and down and backwards and sideways. You ever seen this thing? See, you don't, you don't, 
I'm surprised at you, Joe. You don't realize what vast numbers of cultural things are going on when you're sleeping or drinking beer, whatever it is, the way you're squirting your life away. You know? <laughs> well, have you ever wondered why you cannot turn this stuff off? It's because of these, these uh, extraneous, curiously complex waveforms that are being transmitted by the televisions. They don't even know it themselves. What, what makes people watch the 349th rerunning of an I Love Lucy sequence, which was recorded originally in 1947 when, uh, when she was married to Desi Arnaz and Desi was 12. Why are you watching it? What makes you do this? They are just beginning to discover many things. You wonder why you can't stop listening to me? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, blow the gaff. I tell you that there's a lot more going here than you ever suspected. And, and uh, the matter of, uh, of the mind has yet been plumbed, really plumbed. Uh, speaking of, did you hear about the guy in London? Now, wait a minute. Uh, I'm, I'm just bringing up some serious subjects here to you. Any of you guys out there who are, who are interested in guinea pigs may be interested in the fact that the guinea pig has been recognized since the late 15th century, this is true, has been recognized as an animal with psychic powers. He has a power of, 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 uh, of hearing things and, and detecting uh, various thought movements above and beyond the physical being of the guinea pig. No one knows why. And the guinea pig has had a mystical relationship. Did you know that, that in Peru, uh, back in the uh, 16th century, the guinea pig was venerated and, in fact, was worshipped by several cults of the Incans, just like the cat was worshipped by the Egyptians. Various types of Egyptian uh, religious concepts believed that the cat also had uh, psychic powers. Well, uh, uh, the guinea pig is very much in that department. As a matter of fact, anybody who's ever owned a guinea pig knows what happens. You walk into your pad, you know, and all you've got to do is get your hand near the refrigerator. And immediately you hear from, a, from the, maybe 30 feet away, maybe 50 feet away. That damn guinea pig wakes up and goes, tweet, tweet. Why? He detects your thoughts. Your thoughts would say, I think I'll knock together a salami sandwich. And your hand goes near the refrigerator, and instantly the guinea pig goes, tweet. What's he wanting? Lettuce. He knows in that. <laughs> of course, guinea pigs mainline lettuce. You may not know this, but uh, there's nothing more sickening than a guinea pig who is totally hooked on iceberg lettuce. I mean, they stagger around a cage. And they, they get so that that's all I live for. Have you ever seen people that all they live for is the next drink? Have you ever seen those guys? No, no. Him? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? The next drink of strawberry diet, yoo-hoo, maybe. But uh, have you ever seen anybody who really does live for something like that? Okay. It's a sickening sight to see a guinea pig clinging to the cage bars and rattling it, you know, with, with tears streaming out of his watery eyes, going, tweet! He's crying for lettuce. He's crying. <laughs> and you can't resist it. You know you can't because it's such a pitiful sight. Just like, uh, you know, sometimes you can't resist giving a wino another quarter so he can buy some more of this stuff. It's the pitiful sight. Well, there's a guy in London. He has also been doing some investigating on the 
you know, on the whole idea of the extraterrestrial or the psychic power of animals, this guy has made, well, I'll read the piece to you if you didn't read it. Uh, William Arethan has found a way to make money on the stock market. Ain't it easy to make money on the stock market anymore, you agree? He does not go to to uh, Fenner, uh, Smith, Fink, and Bean, or all these places. You know that are all, you know the one that advertises with the lion that walks around. He doesn't go to these places. What does he do? This guy took a cash balance of zero. Listen to this now. In four months, he worked a cash balance of zero into twenty-two thousand five hundred dollars by playing. Now that's a lot of money for four months from zero from scratch playing both the London stock market and Wall Street. His owner, Bob Beckman, said Tuesday, Beckman, an investment consultant, did you hear what I said? His owner, William Arethan, Beckman, investment consultant, says he reads a list of stocks to his English sheepdog. When William, his name is William Arethan, that dog's name is William Arethan, when William wags his tail or licks his chops, Beckman runs out and buys more stock of that type for William's account. They discuss sales, Beckman said, uh, so far the system has been foolproof and tax-free because you can't tax a dog. The dog's making it. It's in, it's in his money. It's in his name, the dog. <laughs> you cannot tax a dog. And, and the dog has made 22,500 bananas. That's a successful damn dog. Beckman claims that William will not have to pay any capital gains tax on the stock market profits because, quote, he is not a legal person. Despite his success, the nine-month-old dog gets no salary, naturally. And you know why he won't give him any salary? Listen, he will have to pay income tax on it and ruin the whole thing. Beckman explained. Well, that's right. You know that, Do you know that Lassie does pay income tax? You realize. You know, Lassie the dog. But... Uh, but since uh, Lassie cannot pay capital gains tax, you have to be a legal person to do that. This is WOR New York. A spokesman for the Inland Revenue, Britain's tax service, will not comment. They're really bugged. This has never happened. Uh, <laughs> on Beckman's claims, the spokesman said individual tax cases are never discussed when they were contacted. William's shares are bought for him by Beckman's firm. You know, Beckman is his owner. So the firm which is called RCB Financial, which manages about $5 million worth of investment funds. It's a big operation. You know, it's like if uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Finch, uh, Miro, Fenner, Finch, Bean, all these various types, if Mr. Say Merrill decides to hell with all this business of reading uh, the Kiplinger letter, I'm going to talk to Clarence. Hey, come here, Clarence. Clarence is a beagle. Hey, Clarence, uh, what, do you think of, uh, what do you think of Walt Disney Common? And he says, okay, buy uh, five shares of Walt Disney Common for Clarence. Well, that's what they're doing. And uh, this guy says, uh, he says, I wish, uh... <laughs> and he says, he says, I have tried to demonstrate two things, Beckman said. First, someone can make a great deal of money on the stock market without having any money as long as he applies the rules. Second, he wants to establish the smallest investor. I mean, even if you're a sheepdog, can perform like a professional. Uh, William, that's the dog, started on the London stock market, but turned to Wall Street when Wall Street pickings looked a little better. Uh, Beckman said he has taken the advice of leading tax experts on William's status, and he says, I'm looking forward to a good dog fight with the tax men over this one. <laughs> Would you please hit the money button there? The money button, please. Money. 
Thank you. Yeah, I, I the excitement there of Grand Prix, the thrill of downshifting on an open road. New York in the spring at the International Auto Show. The latest economy, luxury, family and sports cars from England, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Sweden and Soviet Union, plus select American models. Some making world or American debuts. Dragsters, customs, classics, antiques, beautiful girls, glamorous fashions. The world's most exciting international auto show. New York Coliseum, now through April 15. Very good. Let's see, we have a little tag here. It says, uh, what was that? No, no tag, no auto tag. Hey, uh, do you like a good glass of wine? Old buddy, I was speaking. <laughs> Shouldn't have mentioned winos on this show. But with the prices rising, are you wondering if French wines might be too expensive? Well, not at all. The Alexis Lachine Company selects the finest wines of France and brings them to you in a very sexy bottle at a price you can afford. Alexis Lachine enables you to serve fine French wines. We'll have your friends calling you uh, hi me to wine expert. To introduce you to the French experience in wines, Alexis Lachine this month features its superb rosé at your neighborhood wine store. Alexis Lachine rosé. The only thing you have to know about French fine wines is the name. Alexis Lachine. Alexis Lachine. Alexis Lachine. Alexis They're uh, imported by Bass Charrington Vintners of New York. And uh, what else do we have to go with that? Uh, let's see. We can run in a couple of... Uh, let's see. Uh, all right, I have one here. How about laying this one on you? My friend bought a Mazda, then he dropped out of sight, so he wrote me a letter to tell of his plight. He said, when you're driving, Mazda makes you smile. So smooth and quiet, you go mile after mile. Just an engine goes... The Mazda goes. You stand on the throttle, the engine comes alive, you fly down the highway and super drive. It's built to travel. Hour after hour, you just cruise and hunt for the murderer of power. It's an engine goes. But the Mazda goes. Well, I drove so far that left my soul before I knew it. I was passing on a pole. Don't worry about my Mazda getting off the track. I'm on a cruise through Europe before I come back. Yes, sir. Just an engine goes. But the Mazda goes. You really like that, don't you, Joe? <laughs> Go for a cruise in a Mazda. Visit one of the 28 Mazda dealers in the greater New York area for a test drive. They do not give you free juice harps with the Mazdas. You like that little juice harp up there, Joe? Well, you're listening to a pro. That's right. Yep, many are called, damn few are chosen. Let's see, uh, what else do we have here? How about a word from the California... Oh, I'm... <laughs> I'd like to talk to that outfit. How about a word from the... You know, all these wine spots. How is this for a word from the California Prune Advisory Council? Hi, my name's Larry, and I eat prunes. The first time in my whole life I tasted <laughs> a prune... I looked at it first and held it in my hand. Mom said I had to... Cut it out, Fred. <laughs> Mom said I had to eat it, so I did. I couldn't believe my mouth. The prunes tasted good. Mom says prunes are good. <laughs> what my little brother is trying to tell you is that prunes are really good for you because they're really healthy with vitamins and iron and minerals and energy and stuff. Prunes are 
Mention clues, and people just naturally break up. Maybe they still don't know that pound for pound, prunes have more iron, niacin, and vitamin B2 than the six leading fresh fruits. And eight times the vitamin A of the most popular fresh fruit. They're even good for your complexion. It's about time people gave another thought to the California prune. <laughs> California prunes. The funny fruit that does so much for you. Yes. A lot of dee 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 Well, first, uh, you got you got the you got the fake you really got to figure that a uh, man has so many things going for him that he doesn't have to do that. I would sit around and giggle about prunes. <laughs> well, some, some people have, uh, you know, some people's lives are so empty uh, that uh, almost anything will make them laugh. You know, somebody dropping a paper bag full of water out of a 34-story window, landing on a poor old lady going across the street with her rubber crutches. And uh, that would make them laugh. And I can't figure out why. Uh, actually, well, you know what What I find? The best way that I can find to make people... If you see my mustache here, Joe, you know there's only clips onto my nose. You understand that? Well, it's not real. It has a clip on the bottom of the nose. And uh, when, when, I, when I meet the sourpuss, I just unclip my mustache and say, Excuse me, sir, uh, uh, my mustache is getting in the way of our discussion. I take my mustache off. We finish as I... We, and I never mentioned it after that. See, we finish our talk, and then I clip my mustache back on and go go on my way. Like I broke up an entire chock full of nuts the other day doing that. You know, I walked into this chock, and I squatted down there with the rest of the uh, herd, you know, all the lemmings there. And, and the guy next to me, uh, he's he's having a hassle with the waitress. You know, I said, I want a chocolate brownie. You bring me a hot dog. I want a chocolate brownie. Well, she brings the hot dog again and says, you ask for a hot dog, sir. I want a chocolate brownie. Well, he finally got his chocolate brownie, and I could see that there was just bad, just bad atmosphere around there at that point. And so just to entertain the crowd, I unsnapped my mustache. And I said, excuse me, I'd like to try this orange drink without straining it through the mustache. And uh, the crowd applauded and laughed, and I drank the orange drink down snap my mustache back in place and left. Spreading sunshine. That's uh <laughs> well although I'll tell you one of the great have you ever have you ever done something out of out of absolute complete uh uh I suppose you might say subterranean urges that have nothing to do with uh with your normal behavior. I remember one day uh most people don't. Most people live very circumscribed lives. Maybe it's because they don't have the kind of imagination. I don't think many people do have much of an imagination. I'm sorry to admit, <laughs> among my fellow beings, that imagination is a sadly lacking quality. And that, that everything has to be pre prepackaged for them. If, for example, you tell a joke to somebody, I'm talking about in the media, let's say radio, TV, the reason that, that almost every show has to have laugh tracks behind it or people laughing is to let people something know it's funny. Then they say, oh, I see, it's funny. Then they start laughing. <laughs> but if they had to make that decision themselves, they're in real bad trouble. Well, you know, one of the greatest cases of this around is, uh, is a show that came on the air here about two years ago. And... Uh, and they, they floundered, I mean really floundered, uh, for about four or five weeks. 
and the show had an original run of 13. And uh, at the end of four weeks, they were desperate. I mean, it was going nowhere. Because a decision had been made on the high-level, level, level, that they were going to do this show. They were fine. They were going to do what the critics have wanted for years. Get rid of all this laugh track stuff. There was going to be no laugh tracks. You know, the critics are always complaining about laugh tracks. So they said, we're going to do a, a comedy show, no laugh tracks. And they did for four weeks. And they were, I mean, they were going nowhere. Uh, they didn't even get, uh, the critics didn't even watch it. They, they, they were really in trouble. So these guys got together. They had a lot of money soaked into the show. And uh, it, was a, it was a whole career for a lot of them. So they got together and said, we got to do something. So they decided to do the show before an audience, at which point every time uh, a... See, now, they were really not quite cheating. They didn't put a laugh track, but they decided to do it before an audience, and every time something funny came up, they would hold up a sign, you know, a joke. <laughs> so immediately, within two weeks, their ratings soared. And right now, they are number one on the, the rating charts. What show am I talking about? All in the Family. If you take those laugh tracks away, it can look like a pretty serious, pretty nasty series of arguments. What are you talking about, meathead? Knock it off! <laughs> that kind of stuff. That's right. I'm telling you the absolute truth. Not many people know it. It's a deeply held secret, but it is an absolute truth. I kid you not, Carol O'Connor's an old friend of mine, and I'm speaking out of knowledge here, friends. Well, this is a fact, because most people simply don't have enough imagination to see humor in many things. They really don't. They have to be told it's funny. So so uh, I've seen this happen so many times. Like a friend of mine one day, we went into this um, this restaurant, and, and it was a kind of restaurant. Now, what made him do this was just one of those impulses. See? We go into this restaurant. He has sort of a round face and big, thick glasses. He looks very much like a guy who, if the chips had fallen in the right place when he was nine years old and things had gone right at Sunday school, he could very well have become a prominent Baptist minister. You know that kind of thing? He has that look. Very straight, round-faced-looking guy. Big, thick glasses. Combs his hair in the middle. <laughs> and he wears rather conservative-type clothes. And he's kind of big. And he's sort of a big guy. You can't miss him. He's not the little guy. He's big enough. He's big enough. And, and so we go into this restaurant. And it was exactly at 12.30 in the afternoon. Now, this was the kind of restaurant... It was not in the city, by the way. It was. A, you ever hear of a Purple Cow? Well, a Purple Cow is a, is a, uh, is a chain of restaurants. Um, that, uh, that Well, it's a chain of restaurants. And it's something like Chockville, but not quite. It's a little more higher level. But uh, they, have, they have these, these horseshoe-shaped counters where everybody sits and looks across the counter at everybody else. You know the horseshoe-shaped counter, and the, and the waitress works in the middle, see? So... This place is packed. I mean, really packed to the gunnels. It's 12.30. It's right in the middle of town. Everybody's going out for lunch, and they're all crowding in there, all these insurance men and all these guys that are, you know, working in places like uh, tabulating offices, all these straight-looking types. And we are all crowded in there, cheek by jowl. Now, the thing about this place is that they serve what they call a bottomless cup of coffee, which means you could get as much coffee as you wanted. You come in and, and you, you, you order or something, and, and they just keep filling your cup until you say, stop. So that was their big, big bit. Uh, and also they had purple cows painted all over the walls. <laughs> so we go into this place, and one of their specialties was buttermilk pancakes. You know, the little kind? Uh, I guess they call them uh, 
uh, silver dollar pancakes. They're little, little bitty ones, see. So we walked into the place and we sit down. And he did not tip me off as to what he was going to do either. He got me off kind of unawares. So we sit at the restaurant table. We sit down there. And uh, I ordered my uh, cheeseburger or something. I'll have a cheeseburger and uh, a cup of coffee and uh, bring me some French fries. So the girl, okay, she says to my friend, what will you have? And he says, I, I think I'll have, uh, he's looking at the menu. He says, how about, uh, how about buttermilk pancakes? He said, I think I'll have some buttermilk pancakes and how about some coffee? And she says, is that all? He says, yes, that's fine. So away she goes. Well, of course, it was 12.30, and the place is jammed, and nothing's happening. we got to be back at the station like at uh, 1 o'clock. We have a half an hour. So we sit there and sit there and sit and sit. You know, sometimes this happens. We sit and sit, and the waitress keeps going by with big trays and stuff. And then finally I said to her, excuse me, uh, uh, <laughs> it's getting kind of late. It's a... Uh, quarter to one now. Yeah, we got to get back at one. She says, don't bother me. Can't you see I'm busy? I'll get it done when it's done. And you can hear in the back, the kitchen, the people yelling and hollering. You know, that kind of nasty scene that develops. And the people are all sitting around or eating and scuffing. Some guys are waiting for their food. Well, finally, it is now about five minutes to one, roughly. And it's, it's going to be all over. We can't, you know, there's no way for us to eat our food. So the chick at exactly the wrong time she comes rushing out about five minutes to one. We got to be back at the station at one and on the air at one, one oh 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 oh. So and the station was a half a block down. So she comes rushing up and she lays in front of me this big juicy cheeseburger, <laughs> and a, and and a and a great big plate of French fries. I said, to her, "What am I going to do with this?" I said, "I can't eat it now." She said, well, "I'm sorry, sir, but uh, the kitchen is busy." And she puts the check down and walks away. Well, what the hell? So I grab the cheeseburger, and I start to eat it, and I take about two big bites, and I put put it back down. And uh, I says, okay. So I grab the check, but I, I, I suddenly realize that everybody is looking at us, all around us. My friend Bob, he is very calmly taking his buttermilk pancakes, and he is rolling them up like cigars, and he's putting them in his sport jacket breast pocket. One after the other. He's just rolling. They're sticking out. He just rolls it up, sticks it in like that. So he rolls up another one. He had a stack, about a half a dozen of them. See? So he just rolls them up one after the other, right, without, absolutely without cracking a smile. Without cracking a smile. He's doing this. One after the other. He's just rolling them up. And they're sticking out. See, they, they stick out. They're like, they look like cigars. And they're sticking out at the top of his, his breast pocket. He just rolls it up. But he now gets, ha I'm looking at him just out of the corner of my eye, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to say anything, but uh, I thought, oh, my God, is Bob finally, it's finally happened. I knew it was going to happen around that rat hole where we work one day. One of them was going to crack up, and that was going to be the end of the ball game, you know. So I didn't want to say anything, and I noticed all the people are looking. Because he's standing up now next to his stool and very carefully doing so everybody can see him. He's doing it. Oh, everybody's looking. And you see guys nudging each other and saying nothing. He's carefully putting... He gets all six of them very neatly done. It looks like he's got six six uh, buckwheat cigars sticking out, <laughs> sticking out of his breast pocket. And then he pulls his final coat. What a what a ploy. Just a, what, what a move. He, he reaches down. Now, they had these big cups in this joint. Big, 
uh, crockery cups. They weren't paper cups. They were big crockery cups. And on the outside of each cup was a big purple cow. And underneath it, it says, all the coffee you want. Big cups. They're bigger than the average cup. He takes the cup, and he just, very carefully, and it's absolutely brimming full of hot black coffee, steam rising out of it. He takes the cup, and now remember, he's standing up for it. And the entire crowd is watching him at this point, surreptitiously. They're all trying to look uh, like they're looking over the top of the menu, you see, looking sideways. And the whole crowd, the place is filled with about 200 people. And he carefully takes the cup of coffee, and he's got this sport coat, got a tweed sport coat on, and he just opens up his side pocket on the sport coat and very carefully pours the cup of coffee right into the coat, <laughs> into the pocket. And he says, okay, let's go. We walk over to the to the cash register. The girl is looking. Her eyeballs are bugging. And uh, I said, uh, uh, let's see, Bob, yours is, uh, I'm looking at the check, yours is a dollar forty-two, and mine's, uh, let's see, I had a hamburger, mine's uh, 65 plus uh, 20 for the coffee. Okay, uh, you owe me a dollar thirty-five, Bob, and I pay the check. And everybody's looking. The entire restaurant is sitting there with their, looking with their eyeballs bucking out. And, and we walk out. He casually walks out with the buckwheat cigar sticking out of his breast pocket and a pocket full of hot black coffee. And we walk out into the street. Now, this restaurant had big windows. You could see into it and you could see out of it. And, and we look, you know, I'm, I'm walking. I, I'm very embarrassed at this point, see. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to say because I figured, you know, Bob has finally flipped his cork. Well, we walk out of the restaurant, walk past the windows, and I glance to my left, which is where the windows were, and I could see the entire restaurant. It was like being on stage at the Helen Hayes Theater. The entire restaurant, without a single exception, including the waitresses, are all looking. With their eyes just looking. And I could hear this laughter starting when we walked past the range of the windows and just as we got out of sight of the windows we're next door to the next building now you can hear this great roar of laughter just a tremendous boom of laughter coming out of this joint and my friend doesn't even crack a smile he walks down the street with me and uh, we're walking along and I don't know what to say to the guy we walk about 100 feet and uh, we're now approaching the station. we got about eight and a half milliseconds to go. See? So we go up the steps. <laughs> and uh, I finally had to say something. I said, hey, Bob. Bob. Wow, you know. Bob. Is this business getting you? He turns to me and said, what? What are you referring to? I said, Bob. Bob. And he still gave me no indication. What, what was the trouble? I said, Pop, the buckwheat cigar sticking out of your pocket. You got a pocket full of coffee. They looked me right in the eye with those Baptist minister eyes and said, uh, So? Pop, I mean, you know, give me any any answer so we walked into the station at this point I've, i think he really has flipped now i figure he's gonna laugh you know so do something he's really flipped so i i, 
I, I walked downstairs into the studio. Said, He's not on. He's somewhere else. He disappeared. And I sent to one of the other engineers. I said, uh, hey, Earl, have you noticed anything strange about Bob lately? And he said, Bob, no. He said, what, what do you mean? I said, Bob, you ought to see what he just did. And he said, oh, what, 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 did you go to lunch with Bob? And I said, yeah, I went to lunch. And he said, oh, well. He says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. I said, what do you mean, don't worry about that? I said, we walked out of the purple cow, and Bob had what looked like six buckwheat uh, cigars sticking out of his coat. He's got a pocket full of coffee now. And Earl says, did he put cream in it? I said, no, I think he's taking it black today. And Earl, at that point, says, uh, well, I guess he's on a diet. Say, uh, what's this I hear about 7-Eleven store franchises? Call them. I mean, is the 7-Eleven franchise uh, going to make me some money? Call them. You know what I hear? I hear they got something like 4,500 stores around the country. That's a lot of stores. They're the biggest, I guess. Billion-dollar corporation, is that right? Call them. You know what? I hear they got one of the best uh, franchise arrangements going. Uh, well, you don't need no experience, and they train you. Hey, I wonder what kind of money you, you have to put in. Call them. You know, I heard that uh, most of these some of them franchises are run by husband and wives. Is that right? Call them. You think maybe they got some uh, some of them store franchises open around here anywhere? Call them. Well, uh, let me ask you this. What's the number? In New York, you call 516-781-2711. In New Jersey, you call 201-843-3006. You got a dime? It sounds mysterious. Very, very mysterious. And now, if you'd like to, if you're not a coffee hound and you prefer to pour a little beer into your sport coat, we'd like to give you a suggestion. Hey, guess who was in here yesterday? Wally Stumble. You know, Will Fuller runs the grocery store in the corner. Well, Wally drops in for his regular Valentine beer, and you know what? Seems his amnesia's come back again. Connery says it's bad this time, real bad. I've forgotten how to make change. Can't seem to remember anything. And I say, Wally, but it's not as bad as you think, and I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to describe a familiar object, and you're going to tell me what it is, okay? Now, what's terrifically refreshing has three rings on the label, and it's chock full of purity, body, and flavor. Well, Wally thinks about it a while. Don't tell me, says. I can get this. Finally, says, Connor, it's one of two things. Them little packs of yogurts or some kind of bird. And there he was with a bottle of Valentine beer right there in front of him. So I say, Wally, that's close enough. Looks to me like you're coming out of it. Some world, huh? Here, let me get you another Valentine. On the house. Yeah, come on, that's it. Open it up there. Valentine Bach beer is now available, friends. Falstaff Brewing Corporation, St. Louis, Missouri, another city. Get yourself all bocked up. Hey, you know, uh, speaking of uh, of the of the incident of the, <laughs> I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna explain it to you. There's nothing to explain. But Bob just did things like that, and and in fact, one of his greatest coups was the time that he secretly worked on. A, and now you're gonna well, I'll tell you, I found out how he did the the bit with the coffee and the coat. You curious how he did that? Well, he took a a plastic. Envelope, you know, like the kind that you get something that's uh, 
that's uh, got a, it's sealed in plastic. He took a plastic envelope, and he had prepared this whole thing. And he had it pinned inside of his pocket. It's like he lined his coat with, with plastic. So when he wanted to pour this coffee in to make his final point, his surrealistic point, he just went glug, 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 and the flap fell right over it. You know, it looked like he was walking, and he was. He was walking out with a, with a pocket full of coffee. <laughs> now, the greatest thing that I ever saw him do, he did these things in absolute secrecy. He never, he never tipped the gap. He never said to his buddies, hey, watch this gag. Nothing like that. One day, Bob walked out of the station, and he was a very good engineer. And he had the damnedest thing on his head I ever saw in my life. He was wearing a derby. Now, you don't see guys wearing derbies often. He had a derby. And we walked out of the station going to lunch again, and he's got a derby on the top of his head. And I want to say, hey, you know, that's a great-looking hat, Bob, you know, wearing a derby like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a hat that used to belong to my old man. I found it in the, in the attic the other day, and I, I just thought I'd wear it. Looks great. And I said, yes, it does. He said, you know, my old man's hat fits me perfectly. I said, it does. And, and at that point, we walk, you know, people look when you wear a derby. And he walks down the street, and he put his derby's on, he says nothing. We get into the, the place where the, where the hat was about to be, where the hat was about to be taken off. We go to another restaurant this time, and Bob walks up to the, walks up to the girl. There was a girl behind the counter in this uh, check counter, you know, checking where, where you check your hats. And he's got the derby. Come on, don't get it confused, guys. Just let it run to the end. It's all right. <laughs> so he walks into the to the restaurant. It was an elegant French restaurant. Bob's wearing a, a, a Macintosh with a derby on. I might also add he had a pencil-thin mustache. Gave him a kind of real elegant look. He was wearing these glasses. Walks up to the lady behind the check counter, and she says, May I check your coats, please? Check your coats, please. Bob takes off his Macintosh, hands of the Macintosh, and there's his derby sitting on the top of his head. Well, it's obvious you got to check a derby. You're not going to walk in and sit down in a French restaurant wearing a derby on the top of your head. So Bob, very carefully, he says, uh, just one moment, please. He removes his derby, flips it over, and he said, uh, would you please uh, watch my hat and uh, be very careful of uh, Howard there. In his derby, he has a very small guinea pig. He checks his guinea pig. He carries it in his derby. <laughs> Says nothing. And the woman looks with a stifled look, and he walks away. We both walk into the restaurant. And about the nine guys are standing back of us, you know, going to check their coats and their, their briefcases. And they take one look, and I sat down with Bob. Bob ordered the filet of sole that day, which incidentally he ate at the restaurant. He did not take it. And he didn't stick it into his vest pocket or, or put it in a... <laughs> he also drank the coffee, which kind of disappointed me. And I didn't want to say anything because at that point I began to believe Bob was... You know, something's really getting, the, getting to Bob. And uh, I had to say something. I said, very nice guinea pig you have there, Bob. I said, yes, it's a Peruvian. Long-haired Peruvian. It's a very nice animal. I said, uh, very nice, yes. The mysterious events of the mind... This is WOR New York. You stay tuned. You hear me for Lester Smith and the news. News in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom, just hours after Arab commandos had bombed the Israeli ambassador's residence in Nicosia, Cyprus, and attacked an Israeli airliner at the airport there, the Israelis struck back. They raided three guerrilla bases in Beirut and one in Sidon in Lebanon, killing or wounding a reported 40 of the guerrillas. 
Among those reported dead are Abu Yusuf, the number two man in the most influential guerrilla group, the Al-Fatah, and Kamal Adwan, a leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. The Israelis landed by helicopter at an airport only three miles from Beirut. Some of the raiders headed for the center of the city in commandeered cars, the first Israeli invasion of the Lebanese capital in more than four years. The Israelis returned to their bases with four of their number wounded. The communique says only mission accomplished. Guests at the Howard Johnson Motor Lodge in Arkansas Avenue in Atlantic City, New Jersey, were evacuated tonight when fire broke out. It was an orderly evacuation. The fire developed into a general alarm blaze with firemen from three nearby communities aiding Atlantic City firemen in battling the fire, which is believed to have started in the kitchen. History-making surgery took place today at Newark, New Jersey's Beth Israel Medical Center. Seven volunteer patients had implanted in them the first American-made nuclear-powered heart pacemakers. A pacemaker assures a steady beat of a damaged heart. WOR's Ed Nash reports. One of the first persons to have an American-made nuclear pacemaker planted in his chest is 64-year-old Al Benninger, a former New Jerseyan now living in Stewart, Florida. Benninger was, one of, was the first president of the Pacemaker Foundation, and I spoke with him at Newark's Beth Israel Medical Center about four hours after he came out of surgery. 